Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, Before I introduce my guest, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this Facebook group that I put together. Um, It's called LGBTQ and Allies in Ward Stakes and Missions. You can search for it on Facebook, but the goal of the Facebook group, if you want to join, it's for active Latter-day Saints that have have a desire to put together LGBTQ-related content or activities in ward stakes, seminaries and institutes, class discussions. Um, There's just kind of a wave of people wanting to talk about this and local leaders also wanting to talk about it. But a lot of people are trying to start from scratch. And in this group, people are sharing ideas, talks, actual things that are happening. It's kind of a way just to virtually counsel together so that you can put together the right things in your area. If you're a local leader, you're welcome to join. We have lots of Um, local leaders in the group. So it's not just members, it's um, local leaders also. Um, But that's my only housekeeping thing for the day, listeners. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Jeffrey Piers. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, Jeff lives in Houston, and he's visiting in Salt Lake. So he's here in my home in person. I became aware of a talk he gave in Sunday school as a gay Latter-day Saint in his YSA ward in Houston. I can't remember who sent it to me. So if you're listening, who sent it to me, thank you. But I just thought it was such a great talk that um, Jeff could be on the podcast and share the talk with you, our listeners. Just by way of background, Jeff Pierce grew up in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He has three siblings. Um, He is a BYU guy. He came out of the BYU accounting program with an undergraduate degree and also a master's degree. And I'm aware of that's a difficult program and a top-rated program in the nation. So credit to you um, for your work there and getting a master's degree. But Jeffrey didn't stop there. He is working on a PhD, and that's what took him to Houston. I'd assumed he went to Houston for a top-notch accounting job, but no, he's there as a PhD, PhD student at Rice, which I think is close to downtown Houston. And his hope, once he gets his PhD, is to be a professor of accounting. Um, so that's an awesome career path. The name of the YSA ward is the Braze Bayou um, Ward, and this is a talk that he gave in Sunday school. So it's about a 45-minute talk. I don't know if he'll go longer or shorter. He can welcome to go longer. That's why it's a longer format than a church talk. And he did this with the permission of his local leaders. And as I listen to this, one of the things you won't get from the talk is how engaging Jeffrey was with the members as he talked about being gay. And that can be sometimes complicated subject, but Jeffrey had this style and I could just tell from the people in the classroom of just disarming the ch- subject and being so normal and natural. And I thought he had a real gift for that and compare, and we can follow his lead as more of us talk about this in our local congregations. Is that okay for an introduction, Jeffrey? That was great. Thank you. So um, how old are you? I am 27 for one more week. For one more week. Well, you got a ton of education under your belt by 27. I think I mentioned you served a mission in the Philippines, but if I didn't, he's it was that's where he served his mission. And I'll just turn it over to you, Jeffrey. Okay. Yeah, I gave this talk uh, in Sunday school, um, and I'm just going to just give it. Uh I'll use the word gay throughout this talk um, as an all-encompassing word uh, that includes lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Um, I don't include transgender people in that because transgender people may or may not be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. 
but most of my discussion will be related to the LG and B portions of being gay. Uh, some of this discussion might be awkward um, or a bit tense, and I'm okay with that. Um, some of the things I say um, are sensitive and very personal, um, but I must admit, like Martin Luther King, that I'm not afraid of the word tension. Uh, things haven't always been easy in the church for someone who's gay. Uh, recently found out that 14.5% of men are six foot or taller. 14.5% of women are five foot six and a half or taller. Between eight and 10% of people have blue eyes. 10% of people are left-handed. We all know tons of people who are six foot or taller or tons of women who are five foot six and a half or taller. But an, an even bigger percent of Gen Z adults identify as either L, G, B, or T. 15.9% of them identify as LGBT. More Gen Z adults identify as LGBT than there are men who are six foot or taller or women who are five foot six and a half or taller. If you're male, you have a greater chance of being transgender than of being six foot four inches or taller. These numbers are low because this is self-reported data. And there are a lot of people in this world who still don't want to report about themselves and therefore wouldn't consider themselves or talk about themselves being gay. Now I just want to get personal. I want to talk about my life and my experience. Uh, to do that, I'm going to talk about my life as a member of the church, and then I'm going to go into why it's hard to be a member of the church as a gay person. And then I'll end my talk on why I choose to be in the church still. When I was a kid, I was in primary, and in primary, we would learn lots of songs. So I would learn things like, I am a child of God, and he has sent me here, or families can be together forever. I would learn things like, my life is a gift. My life has a plan. My life has a purpose. In heaven, it began. I'd learn things like, what does the Father ask of us? What do the scriptures say? Have faith, have hope, live like his son, help others on their way. I haven't listened to those songs in a long time, but they're burned into my brain because this is what I was taught and this is what I learned. In my childhood home, family was central. We had the family proclamation on our wall our local temple from when we were kids, and then the temple my family was sealed in when we were kids. Being a part of a family is central to my life. I really wanted to be a trial lawyer. I really wanted to go on Jeopardy and be exactly like Ken Jennings. I even had a picture of Ken Jennings on my wall growing up. I wanted to be like Derek Jeter. I still have a picture of Derek Jeter on my wall. But more than anything, I wanted to be a dad because being a dad was central to everything in our family and in our life. Family is what it was all about. Now I wanna talk a little bit about my family. I need to preface this by saying that I love my parents and I think my parents are wonderful people and any mistakes that they made or have made are a reflection in my mind of a broader culture and not a reflection of their intentions. When I was 10 years old, my brother Jonathan came out as gay to my mom. My brother told my mom on a walk when he was 14, and she told him that he wasn't gay and that he was likely misunderstanding something or that he was trying to rebel. He got to go to LDS Family Services Counseling, and he was taught that with some faith, he could be different. 
Now, of course, the lesson that we learned from that, and that unfortunately I learned from that, is that because he's gay, it must be because he's lacking faith. And that logically follows from, if you have more faith, then you won't be gay. When I was 12, our family of six became a family of five in a lot of ways, because my brother moved out when he was 16, largely because he was gay. I didn't know I was gay at that time, but what I did know was that being gay was bad. I knew that families were forever, but not if you're gay. Although I lived in the same room as my brother for the first 12 years of my life, I didn't speak to him again until 2021, when he DM'd me on Twitter and said, long time, no speak. For 16 years, I didn't talk to my own brother. In an M. Night Shyamalan-style twist, two months after my brother came out, when I was 12 years old, I found out that I, too, was gay. Teenage years were tough. You had to talk to girls. You had to go to church dances and dance with girls. You had to listen to your dad ask you who you're dating all the time. When I was 14 years old, someone taught me incorrectly that being gay may be caused by exposure to pornography when I was 12 years old. This is something that I've still heard people teach today. For a long time, before the world was more accepting, a lot of parents would look for any excuse to not have it be their fault that their child is gay. So I was taught at age 14 that maybe it was pornography at age 12 that caused me to be gay. Well, it turns out that I had been exposed to pornography at age 12. What I didn't know at the time is that every male teenager is exposed in some way to pornography, and if they're not, it must be some sort of miracle. But what I knew at age 14 is that I had ruined my chances at salvation at age 12. And I could read the Doctrine and Covenants and know that. Of course, none of this was true, but you tell 14-year-old me that. In 2008, I had my first experience with the concept of gay pride, being okay with being gay. There was a wonderful film I saw. It should have won Best Picture. It was called Milk, and it was about the first openly gay elected official in California. He was later murdered. Uh, but in the movie, he says, To the gay community all over this state, my message to you is we must destroy the myths once and for all. Shatter, shatter them. We must continue to speak out. And most importantly, every gay person must come out. Tonight, it is clear that everyone out there does know one of us. And now that they do, they see we are not sick. They can feel we are not wrong, and they know that we should have a place in this great country and in this world. A message of hope has been sent to all the young people out there. This was an incredible moment in my life. And I know I'm just talking about a movie, and that's random, but so much of me has been affected by the movies I've watched. And this was the first time I knew that gay pride was a possibility. After I graduated high school, I went to college and I went on a mission. I decided to attend BYU in 2011, which is where I've had most of the best days of my life so far. I loved that place. I served a mission in the Philippines from 2012 to 2014. I taught a lot of people to have faith. And I taught a lot of people that families could be together forever. I came home from my mission and decided that I could put all that gay stuff aside and I would just marry a woman because that somehow made sense to me at the time. 
And then once I started getting to the age where that was a possibility, I realized that that wasn't going to be for me because I realized that thinking of women romantically wasn't like how I don't like peanut butter or something. It was more like eating moldy bread or something much worse. It was an idea that I couldn't square. I couldn't put a woman in that position and I couldn't put myself in that position. So I decided that I must have to be single my entire life. In 2016, at 22 years old, I came out to someone for the first time because he had come out to me. I used the phrase same-sex attraction when I told him. My own opinion now is that I don't like that term because it implies that there's something wrong with the person. Everyone, of course, can use their own words to describe themselves, but that's not the phrase I choose to use now. In 2020, at the age of 26, I was able to use the phrase, I'm gay, for the first time. And that's when I told my bishop. In December of 2020, I came out publicly. Now I want to talk about why it's hard to be a member of the church and be gay. One hard part, and this is very personal, but I came out to my dad over text. Text is the best way to do that, by the way. Face-to-face -face coming out is terrible. When I came out to my dad, he said, I love you too. And he said, just know that I'm here for you. And those are both great things. Unfortunately, in the middle of the text, though, he said, I'm not really sure what to say or think. I need some time to process. Those middle sentences are all I could think about. We haven't talked about it again yet, but maybe we will someday. Being gay is not just an attribute of me like my height or like my love for accounting. It's the single most important non-religious attribute of my life. And it's certainly more, than, more important than some religious attributes. It is central to who I am. The best response I ever got when coming out was from a friend of mine who said, I wouldn't want you any other way. When I talk about why it's hard, I don't want to come across like my experience is somehow harder or worse than anyone else's. It's just that I'm the one speaking right now. And so I'm talking about me. What some people might respond to me when I complain is, don't you know I'm not married either? And some people will never be. And they're straight. I'm not trying to deny that experience. I'm just trying to share my own. In the singles ward that I go to, I watch a lot of the guys when the door opens behind us during the sacrament or during sacrament meeting. And all the men, the women don't tend to do this, but all the men turn their head back, presumably hoping that the person for them has walked through the door. As a member of this church, if I'm to be a good member, when I look back at that door, I have to hope that the person for me did not walk through. I have to hope that my soulmate did not walk through that door. And I have to hope that they never do. And that makes it hard. I get to talk to a lot of married people who tell me their life would never be the same without their family, that their family and their children are the single most important things to them in their entire life. And then in the same sentence or in the next sentence, they'll say that it's entirely reasonable for me to have to live without those things. I'm not talking necessarily about church policy right now. I'm just explaining why it's hard for me to be a member. If I asked some of the married people in the church if they would trade their church membership to have their family, or if they would give their family back if it meant that they could stay a member of the church, I would suspect that some of them, if not all of them, 
would first give up their church membership before giving up their family. This isn't some analogy I'm making, by the way. This is exactly the trade-off that's expected of gay members of the church. Another part of this is that life is hard. And what's the point of life? I learned as a kid that the most important part of life is having a family and serving well in the church. Well, I've about peaked in my church service now, I think, or pretty close. Somehow they let me be the ward mission leader in my ward. But gay members of the church can't serve in leadership callings in large part. And so it might be tough for me to serve meaningfully in the church in my life. And it's certainly going to be tough for me to have a family. So then when I go to school and I fail every single test I take, when I get comments on my assignments like, no, exclamation point, or this is nonsense. When I go through a miserable experience of a PhD program, I often think, why am I doing this? What's the point? Why get a PhD in accounting? One of my favorite jobs ever was making sandwiches. Why not just go do that? Why am I making myself miserable with college degrees? I mean, miserable. Why am I breathing? Who am I making money for? Why am I here at all when the most important things in life, as I've learned it, family and church service, are largely not available to me? I've been told many times that I'll be happy in the next life, and that's good. I'm ready for that. But I think we need to be careful saying that to people because we're effectively encouraging them to speed up the process of getting to the next life. And that's unfortunately what happens with a lot of gay people. They do speed up that process, hoping to find happiness. Men are that they might have joy, we learn. I'm asking all of us to do something to bring the joy of the next life into this life in some way. There's got to be some of the joy of the next life for gay members that we can pull into this life. I think there's some of, sometimes the talk of the next life is an excuse for injustice and for laziness on our part. I think that there's stuff that we can do, even at the local level, to help our gay members. One thing is to get our minds right about this. In the last two months, I've had a couple experiences with this. I don't have the time today to talk about comments that have made by people worldwide over the last hundred years. There are plenty of those. We don't have time to talk about how, until 2003, 18 states didn't allow you to be actively gay. Anti-sodomy laws were on the books of 18 states until 2003, when the United States Supreme Court ruled in a 6-3 decision in Lawrence versus Texas that that's unconstitutional. That's so recent that one of the dissenting justices on that court is still on the court today. The state I live in, Texas, is one of those states, and Texas still has anti-sodomy laws on its books today. They've just been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Even leaders often get the language wrong. I've been personally told in the last two months by leaders of our church that we need to treat gay people as if they're just the same as us, and then we don't have to talk about it anymore. I've been told, I don't have to deal with it, so I don't need to worry about it. A few weeks ago, I was told in a Q&A that I should marry a woman. Many gay men in the church are active and married to women, I was told. I've been told that sometimes people have to battle these tendencies 
for their entire lives. If you're wondering what words I object to in that sentence, I object to sometimes, and I object to tendencies. Language matters. I've read recently from a prominent church leader that gay rights is nothing less than a time bomb wrapped with glitter and a glamorous bow, and that the day of reckoning will come, and the explosion will occur. This is troubling to me. In my opinions, in my opinion, these are examples of leaders missing the mark a little bit. I know that offense is a two-way street, but too often gay members are required to actively choose to not be offended by brazen, hurtful comments. And that makes it hard. A lot of people have said, wait, things will get better. Stuff will happen. I want everyone to know that I have 10 years. I have 10 years to decide whether to be a member of this church forever or to have a family. Because then I'll be old and unattractive. 10 years. So you say wait, and it's fine to say wait because it doesn't affect you. As Martin Luther King noted, this wait has almost always meant never. But why am I still in the church if it's so hard? Why am I still an active member of the church? I stay because first and foremost, I believe the Book of Mormon is true. My mission president used to say the church is true because the Book of Mormon is true. And I, and I believe that. I believe the Book of Mormon is true. I've read it many times. I stay in the church because of 14-year-old young men and young women who desperately need to be told there's nothing wrong with them. I'm 27. I'm an, I'm an adult. I can face it. 14-year-olds are the ones who need to hear this stuff. I stay because I believe the gospel is for everyone. In fact, in this church, we all believe the gospel is for everyone. We have to. When Joseph Smith founded this church with the help of God, they decided to reject Calvinism, to reject the belief that there are some people who are destined for salvation and other people who are not. We live in a church where everyone can be saved. I stay because I believe that. I stay because no fewer than a dozen members of my own ward have messaged me personally, telling me that they too are gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Many of them are active in the church. More importantly, maybe, many of them are not. Each one of those people wonders whether staying in the church is the right choice for them. I stay in part so that people will know it's possible to stay. I stay because the restoration is ongoing. When President Nelson became president of the church, he had this big change where he told us to stop calling the church that. He said, stop saying Mormon. And this was in 2017 or 2018. What was his source? Was it some crazy revelation? No. What did he cite? He cited 3 Nephi chapter 27, where it says explicitly, don't call my church that. I don't remember exactly what verse, but it's in the second column towards the bottom. It says, if this is the church of Moses, call it the church of Moses. If it's the church of a man, call it the church of a man. But if it's Christ's church, call it Christ's church. Now, of course, it's always been called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The correction that President Nelson was going for was a cultural correction and a policy correction where we needed to change something that we've been doing that didn't quite fit the doctrine. My only point in saying any of this is that it took 188 years for us just to read that little part of 3 Nephi and apply it to the culture of our church. 
This restoration is ongoing. Many apostles have noted that the church cannot be perfect because it is run by imperfect people. I stay because God gives every man agency. We fought for the right to choose wrong. I strongly believe this. Satan's plan and Jesus' plan both allowed us to choose the right. It was Jesus' plan only that allowed us to choose wrong. One of the major differences between those two plans is our chance to make mistakes. And I believe very strongly that many men and women in this church and elsewhere for a very long time have chosen wrong with respect to gay members. The wonderful thing about agency, though, is that the right to choose wrong also comes with the right to choose right. And we all can make things right. I do want to put a caveat here. I don't want to say that I'm still in the church because I'm comfortable here. I don't want to say it's because I'm happy. I'm not here because I'm comfortable. I don't stay because I'm happier here. I don't stay because it's easy to stay. I don't stay because I believe my life will be better as an active member of the church. I actually believe it probably won't. Gay people have to choose between happiness and unhappiness in a lot of cases. Some of us choose unhappiness in order to choose the church and in order to choose God. It's not easy for us to stay. And when gay members choose to leave, we would do well to remember that maybe they've chosen happiness. And maybe once we make meaningful cultural change, they'll be able to find happiness inside the church as well. I stay because of a little chapter in the Old Testament, Judges chapter 6. It's the most important Old Testament chapter for me in my life. In it, Gideon is this man who is an Israelite, and he's trying to save the Israelites from the Midianites. And he gets really upset with God because God is not helping the Israelites. At least Gideon doesn't think so. Gideon says to God, Oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our father told us? Now the Lord hath forsaken us and hath delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Gideon is saying, where are you, God? You said you were going to send somebody and you didn't. Gideon is angry. The Lord then looked down upon Gideon and said, go in thy might. Thou shalt save Israel from the Midianites. And then there's a great surprise punchline in this verse and why I love this chapter. God says, have not I sent thee? This is so beautiful to me. And maybe this chapter is just for me, but maybe God has sent me here. I am a child of God and he has sent me here. Maybe I and we as allies of gay people and as gay people ourselves in some cases are the ones who can help change the culture surrounding us. I know of only two other openly gay members of my ward, and I know of at least 13 who are not openly gay. So if that says anything about our culture, we're still not there. What can we do, though? Be creative. That's what I ask. I don't know. What can you do? Be creative. Think of something. I would say ask yourself, if I had a gay family member or a gay friend, would they know that they would be safe to come out to me? Do your Facebook friends know that you're an ally? Maybe post something. If you're afraid of posting something, I ask you why. And think about why. Why don't you want to post something? Is it because you're afraid people will think you're gay? 
And if you are afraid that people will think you're gay, I hope you'll ponder this message a little bit longer and understand how gay people feel. Seek personal revelation. President Nelson has consistently asked us to do this. Ask those in power to seek more revelation as well. I have the power to raise my hand in Q&A sessions, and that's about it. I don't have much power around here, but there are people we can talk to to make sure that we have more high-profile allies in this church. All I ask for is creativity. Now, I'm more, more immediately concerned with saving lives than with structural changes in the church, but I'm certainly interested in both. Some people think that I bring this topic up too much and that other people talk about gay things too much. I know this because people keep telling me that. This is not some small piece of me, though, so I have to talk about it. In this church, we don't say, what can we do, rhetorically. When we say, what can we do, we mean we want to help. We need to stop saying, what can we do, rhetorically, to our gay members. Last year, there was a hurricane in Louisiana. I live in Houston, about three hours away from the hurricane site. Within 48 hours, a multi-stake effort was coordinated because people were suffering. Within 48 hours, members of our church were on the ground in Louisiana, cutting down trees, moving branches, and cleaning yards. Almost none of us knew what to do. Almost none of us knew how to operate a chainsaw. But the two or three most mature men in each group grabbed a chainsaw and did their best. Kids couldn't do a whole lot, but they could clean up trash and rake leaves. People like me could climb up a tree and pull down some branches. We could dra drag branches to the road. At every single house, we had to tell the owner that we wouldn't be able to clean up everything. We wouldn't be able to get the whole tree out of their yard. We simply didn't have the tools for that. We said, we're going to do our best, and we're going to make sure this tree is off your house, at least. We're going to make sure you're not immediately suffering or suffering more than you can handle. You're going to need professional help to get this stump out of your yard. But we'll do what we can. We don't say, what can we do rhetorically? We look for ways to help. When we can't do everything, we don't use that as an excuse to do nothing. We do what we can. Yes, for gay members, professional help may be needed. There may be tree stumps left for gay members that will never in this life be removable. But that doesn't mean we can't get the tree off their house. That doesn't mean that our rollout should be any slower than our 48-hour hurricane turnaround time. Lives are actually at risk. I'll just close this talk with a few words from Martin Luther King. He talks about time, and he says that time is neutral. Nothing will happen just because time passes. He says, quote, we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. It's a great, 
so much of that. That's so insightful and so helpful, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you. How long did it take you to write that? Um, once I sat down to write, I probably just about a week, but I, I had it in my brain for about four months. That's That was our process. I first met with the bishop and he said, I think we should do something. And we planned it from there. Um, you're a very good writer. They don't teach that necessarily in your career path. <laughs> Thank you. You're a very good speaker. You're very measured in just your pace, which helps our listeners. You have some wonderful gifts. There's so many questions I have. It's just a great talk. It frames up being gay as well as any guest I've ever heard on this podcast. The complexities of your situation and invitations for all of us to improve our culture, improve our circles, to take action, to help on this critical issue within our faith. Talk about um, the reaction of your bishop. Was I think you just mentioned, was he aware that you were doing this? Is he supportive? Has he been supportive since you've done it? Um, just talk about your relationship with your local leaders. Yeah, I, I first told my bishop this, uh, that I was gay in June of 2020, and immediately he said, I think there's a book coming out by Charlie Bird that that's going to be good. Have you read that or have you thought about reading that? Um, and I, I told him that I, I knew it was coming out and I was going to read it. And he said, I'm going to read that book. Um, and then he said that when I was ready, he wanted me to to speak out for, for gay issues. And I wasn't, I wasn't openly gay at that time. Um, and then once I came out, uh, in December, he started talking to me a little more and said he wanted to do something. It was almost like he was the one driving, uh, driving this and, and wanting this talk to happen. I met with him several times and, you know, I had to promise him that I wasn't going to say anything too crazy, <laughs> but he, the best thing he said to me was, I want you to be honest. And that's the most important part, whether, you know, even if it's awkward, even if you say something that's a little bit, maybe not what we normally hear in Sunday school, he just wanted me to be honest. I'm thinking of um, the message that sends for all the YSAs that he wanted you to give this talk and be honest. And if I'm a YSA, most of the YSAs are straight in your ward, as your math would show. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking... They know they can talk to their bishop. If he's going to kind of allow this discussion and this needed discussion to happen, it just sends a message about who he is and the issues he's willing to talk about and his desire to create Zion in his YSA ward and help everybody feel like they belong. So it helps you. It helps the closeted gay people that are coming out in your ward, but it, it, I think it helps the whole ward. Um, that's one of my feelings. Talk about the reaction... Okay, so everybody's now in Sunday school class. There's been a closing prayer. And I could sense, because I've heard an audio, that there's a lot of positive sort of feeling in the room. But talk about what it was like to finish that meeting and um, the people that came up to you or not or the messages you've got and just what's happened the last month since you gave that talk. Yeah, we uh, right when I finished, uh, one of the members of the stake presidency came up to me immediately and gave me a hug. I've never hugged him before, but, uh, and then the, the bishop and his counselors and their wives all came up individually and talked to me and, um, said very supportive things like, I wish I had heard this message 10 years ago, you know, or I had never considered it that way. That, that image that you, that you gave was something I hadn't thought about. 
Um, and they've just been really supportive. This was only a few weeks ago. Um, but the bishop, even afterward, just made it clear. He said, I don't want this to be the end. Um, and even his wife, uh, right after this talk, came up to me and said, what can we do next? Can we get you over to our house and discuss what happens next? And we haven't done that yet, but uh, they were all ready to talk about the next step immediately. I love that you didn't sugarcoat life as a gay Latter-day Saint. All is not well in this space. And I love that we can, I think um, we need to learn to be able to talk about harder topics within the walls of our church. And everything you talked about, you didn't advocate for doctrine um, changes. You talked about cultural changes. Um, some people feel our doctrine could and needs to change in this space. And I want to create space for everybody on their feelings in this space. But I recognize that even though some things you said stretch us, you didn't ask, you didn't campaign for any doctrinal changes. Um, and I think whenever we start in this space, people get nervous that it's, but I just thought you did a great job um, of talking about how we can improve culturally and really framing up the difference between a straight person and a gay person. And my heart kind of broke for what you talked about. You've always wanted to have the gospel in a family. And that's out of your, you're in a Pandora's box. You're in a double bind as one father framed it for me with two gay sons. He says, my sons just want a companion. They want to be in the church. And they're in a double bind. They can't do both. And when you start to look at it the way you framed it, your heart starts to just, um, you know, as you know firsthand, just sort of break for the complexities of your situation. I love where you talk about, and Ben Shalati taught me this when I was trying to better understand the space. He said, my greatest fear is I'll, I'll fall in love with the man. And I thought, well, he's just in lockdown mode so he can fully participate in the church. And you talked about that when you talked about you can't look back because mm -hmm. you might find your soulmate. And then that complex, that just, one hand, that's great. You know, and I found my soulmate, you know, during the phase of your life, you were at BYU. That's when I found my dear wife from Houston, Texas, ironically. Um, but Ben and you are in your greatest fear in some ways is you'll find him. Because um, then you've got to face the realities of your situation. And Ben has a straight sister and talks about, you know, she can pray at night. She can have her hopes and her sexual orientation all aligned. She's still single, and that's not easy. But she's not sort of in lockdown -y mode. I just go back to BYU, and we talked about this earlier, that all that emotional capital I did, that I was spending and time and energy was all for my future family. I remember going to the Tanner building, getting there at 6 a.m. to study hard. And it was all with this dream in my mind that I would have this family and that I would have this wife and this long career road that you're in the middle of would result in financial stability and a wife and family. And that's a lot of motivation to get up early and go to that Tanner building. I still remember getting there early in the morning and I just can't imagine. I don't know if the accounting department's in the Tanner building. It is. It is. And so I just can't imagine what it's like to be walking your road and um, wondering what this all means for you. Will you ever be able to, because obviously you'll be able to financially support, just more thoughts that come into your mind as I talk. You know, I, I was at my bishop's house just a few weeks ago, and it's a nice house. He's a 
And I just often think, soon I'm going to make enough money to have a house. Like, soon, within a couple years. But what for? Um, soon I'm, I could, I love the suburbs, you know, I love this, like, mowing my lawn and, like, doing these things. Uh, I don't love mowing the lawn, but I like the idea of it. Um, and I feel like I'm maybe stuck in apartment life forever because I don't know what I would get a house for. And I think that's a symbol of a lot of other things too. What is, what is all of this about? And this last year has been so hard mentally on everybody. Um, and for me, it's just been miserable time at school. And every day I have to wake up and think, do I want to quit this program? Do I just want to stop? Who am I helping? Um, and it makes it really hard. And I think that certainly if I had uh, hope for a family, it would at least get me out of bed. It's really honest. Um, those of you that don't my, know my personal story, it, it was people like Jeffrey when I was a YSA bishop, and it was the first time I listened to gay people tell me about being gay. And I wrote this in my book, but it was a great spiritual rebuke I felt um, from the Spirit saying, you've let straight people define this group for your whole life. And I was in my 50s, and it's time for you to let gay people define being gay for you. And in that spiritual rebuke, I felt um, the analogy of wiping my hard drive clean and just starting from scratch, because I didn't know what I'd picked up that was accurate or not, Jeffrey. And I'd picked up a lot of stuff that you mentioned that was not accurate. And a lot of that is against this narrative that something went wrong, so somehow you can fix what went wrong. And that was one of the clearest things that came to my mind. And after giving priesthood blessings to multiple LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, I've, I've just felt so strongly that you are as how you're meant to be. And our Heavenly Father isn't capable of making a mistake or being surprised. And that puts you on the same moral footing as straight Latter-day Saints, moral footing that you are created in the image and likeness of God and who you are is who you're intended to be. And nothing went wrong, nothing went haywire. And then I think if you believe that, and talking now not to Jeffrey, but to listeners, then I think you can believe Heavenly Father loves you and you are and you can have a better relationship. But that's some of my personal journey in this space. But then I recognize we're not to the finish line in this issue. I, um, because we've, you know, we've got a bunch of straight kids at our home. No one's come out. I don't think anybody will at this point. Um, and I, they just have a path for married. Um, and I just recognize you don't have that path. And my heart just kind of breaks for you. And I recognize we just have more to do. Talk um, two potential questions. Tell us the name of your talk. Uh, it was called, And He Has Sent Me Here. Why? The name of that talk. I... I love the imagery of the of the church music, and it's a primary song. You know, I am a child of God, and and we. I've been told so many times when I talk about being gay that the most important things that matters is that I'm a child of God, not that I'm gay, and that being gay is secondary to that. And so I love taking the second line of that song and saying, "Yes, it's true, I'm a child of God, but He's sent me here, me in all aspects." He's sent gay Jeffrey here, you know, so as much as we want to just think being a child of God is all that matters, I think we also have to remember that he has sent all of us here as we are, 
I love that. I just love where you are at your point of your life and your understanding of who you are. Um, these words kind of broke my heart, but I knew at age 14 that I'd ruined my chances of salvation at age 12. And that you wish you could go back and talk to your 12, 14 year old Jeff. Talk just more about that and what you'd say to your 14 year old self, 12 year old self, or just so anywhere many, you want to go. So many things to say to, to say to myself. Um, but at that time I was a perfectionist kid you have to be to um to try to be smart and to try to get good grades and i wanted to be perfect and i we put on the i put on the perfect face all the time i was early to church every time i did the sacrament every week and so the moments of me not being perfect were always hard and and so i talked about you know pornography for example at, at that at that young age and being so ashamed of it, not wanting to talk to anybody about it, of course. And when that ended up being tied with such a bigger thing, uh, not just go talk to your bishop and he'll do whatever bishops do. I had no idea at that time, but go talk to your bishop and he'll tell you to stop doing that. Um, no, it was so much bigger. It was you you can't be attracted to women now because, because you saw those things. You can't uh, do anything. And I'm not sure I realized it all, but I would tell myself just, I don't know, everyone wants to tell themselves it'll be okay, I think. And, and I wish that I had known about mistakes as a young kid. I would tell myself, keep making mistakes. If you haven't made a mistake, I, I, I work with the missionaries right now and we have a new missionary and I just told him the other day, if you don't, you know, make 20 mistakes this week, if you don't teach false doctrine a few times this week, you've failed in your first week. You need to, you need to make mistakes. And it was only in 2018 when I listened to Lindsay Robbins talk until 70 times seven, he says that repentance wasn't the backup plan. Um, that repentance was the plan. Adam and Eve were given two commandments knowing that they must break one. Breaking commandments was the plan. Making mistakes was the plan. And gosh, I wish that I would have known that as a, as a kid. Thanks for talking. You just helped a lot of people that sometimes don't know that what you just taught. It is our doctrine. And it is a doctrine based on hope and love and the mortal plan. And I wish we helped younger people understand um, pornography's you know, a lot of people are um, seeing pornography at pretty young ages. And I think I talked about this in the book, but pornography to me, a sin is a window into someone's sexual orientation, not something that changes someone's sexual orientation. So I think it's important to decouple those because it goes back to this narrative that something you did something and we can sort of unwire this um, through some sort of therapy. And that just adds to your shame and self-loathing as, mm -hmm. as you understand um, I love your kindness to your parents. There's a lot of grace to your mom. Um, and I think that that takes a lot of courage because I think a lot of LDS parents, after a while in this space, kind of want to do what I do, re go do a do-over and do a go back and sort of lift the burdens of all the people that they've added burdens to with what I call uninformed opinions. Um, so I thought you were very kind to your parents. Talk about what you wish your dad had said. You kind of talked about 
the beginning text and the end text, just for parents that are listening, say, I want to do the right thing. What do you wish your dad or any parent had done? I think that a parent just needs to be really recognized that this is probably the hardest text that your kid has ever sent uh, to you. And, and so I think that it's all about positivity and it's all about not pretending like anything should be different. You know, saying things like, I still love you. That's, that's frustrating to me. I still love you as if you're doing me a favor. Um, or nothing changes is okay, I guess, but that's interesting to me too. It, it almost implies that something should change and I don't want things to, things shouldn't have to change. This is, this is who I am. You know, my mom said something that was funny, I guess. She said, quote, I had already suspected, but did not think I should ask. Uh, it's kind of funny. But my friend Justin, when he told me that he wouldn't want me any other way, I loved that. Um, but I think that the key from a parent is just, I love you. I'm here for you. And let's talk about it. I think most gay people want to talk about it. Of course, let the gay person speak when they want to, but open up that dialogue and say, I'd love to hear more about your experiences. I'd love to talk to you about those things. Show interest in it. Um, but the last thing you want to do, I think, is show that you might be ashamed of your child. And I love my dad. I need to, I need to step that in there. He's, he's great. My dad is great. And he's learning in a lot of ways, too. Um, so I don't want to pretend at all that I, my dad's a bad guy. Talk about shame. You just mentioned that briefly, and you've kind of inferred those comments create shame. Just anything you want to talk about shame. Well, you know, there was a comedian who did a um, a Netflix special a, a few years back, and in it she says that she was homophobic before she knew she was gay. And I hadn't ever realized that about myself until I listened to this, but I was... I knew that being gay was wrong so young. And so, so when I found out I was gay, I knew I couldn't tell anybody ever. And I was certainly ashamed of it. And I was certainly, I don't, I guess logically it doesn't make sense because I wasn't to blame, but I, I certainly felt like it. But then when things, when I did do things that I shouldn't, then it felt like, oh, this is why. Now, this is what God wanted. Um, or this is what God is doing to me. He's punishing me in a sense. And you know, I have my patriarchal blessing and so many, so many great promises in a patriarchal blessing. And I just assumed that I've ruined my chances at those, those blessings. And that made sense because I have made mistakes, tons of them. And we all have. And it's easy to think that you've ruined your chance at salvation already and not just because of things I've already talked about, but because of any other mistakes I've made, which are, which are plenty. That's good. I just, listeners, we talk about shame and I've learned so much about shame from Dr. Brene Brown and my podcast guests, but I think shame is one of the greatest tools, Satan's greatest tools to separate us from each other, from our heavenly parents. And there should be no shame around sexual orientation. Um, straight, LGBTQ, trans, you kind of talked about how transgender is a whole different experience. But I just think that that's one of Satan's greatest tools. To, to, and society adds to that. It's not like there's just, there's all this cultural headwinds that you experience that just create shame. And 
and that's where I feel like we're really improving as a culture. Um, and that you're a good bishop and stake member of your stake presidency has said, we need to talk about this and let's have, I, you know, I get asked to speak in church settings and I generally try to get an LGBTQ person to speak. You know, sometimes I will, and I'm glad to be an ally and try to be a voice, but my heart changed listening to people like Jeffrey. And so if you're in a local congregation, I think that's, you need, you, you I, I love for LGBT to step forward and share their stories. It humanizes them. I think that's the greatest way I've grown is by listening to stories. Um, talk about your future. Um, here you are trying to figure out your future. Do you want to share anything about your future with our listeners and, and how we can support you in your future? Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about my future yet. Um, I'm going to be an accounting professor in a couple of years, hopefully, and go teach somewhere. You know, my dream was always to teach where I went to school at BYU, and I'm not sure that that's a path for me that, that will be reasonable now. But um, dating might be more in my path. Looking for a spouse might be in my path. My mom now says that she wants to walk me down the aisle when I get married, so she's she's ready. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I'd I'd love to be able to be married and to have a family. I'd love to be able to live a chaste life with one person. But I recognize that I shouldn't get my hopes up about too many things. Um, related to this. And and maybe if I do that, my time in the church would would end. But I my plan is not to end my time in the church by my choice. I'd like to help speak out more. Um, and I'd like to help, especially help the youth of the church. And I'd like to help anybody I can to to speak about these issues more. And maybe even if my life doesn't get everything that I want, uh, the next generation might. It's really honest. And I'm not your priesthood leader or a close friend, but when I meet with people like Jeffrey, and I'm not a priesthood leader, so I can't speak in that sense. I just invite people to stay in the church and follow church teachings, but I invite people to get personal revelation for their path and self-determine their best path. And I'll say, I'll walk with you. My role in your life, my Love for you is not conditional on anything. It's just there. And I and I recognize the complexities of your situation. And I just, and then if you felt like your path was to marry a man, I like what your mom said. I think because your mom said that, it doesn't mean you're more likely to do it. I just think she know, you know she loves you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that love is so key in these situations to just let people know we have this non-agenda love for them. And there's no conditions attached or we're just going to treat you really good, Jeffrey, because you're fully participating in the church, but we're going to treat you differently if for some reason your path changes. I think we just love our neighbor as ourselves and we just let people figure out the best path for them. There's a lot of paths um, sort of, and I don't even want to use this language outside the church, they're more responsible than others. The one you talked about, a chase path with a, in a monogamous relationship is different than some of the other ways you could choose to go down this road. So I, 
I recognize the complexity of your situation and just, you know, if I'm your friend or your, I just say, I trust you, Jeffrey. And that's all what I say that kind of role playing with Jeffrey. I don't know him very well, but I just, that's what I think we should do as allies is sit with people, hear their stories, be willing to hear the complexities of their stories, and then invite them to stay close with Heavenly Father, invite them to stay close to the church, but but be at peace that as they understand their path forward, that they need to self-determine their best path forward. And our job is to just walk with them. To me, that doesn't, that's the best thing we can do. Um, I'm a deeply believing member of the church, but this is an area where we just have more work to do because I think we're all alike unto God. We're all meant to have joy in this life, Jeffrey. I don't think it's fair. I think it's a platitude when I just say everything will work out in the next life. That, as you articulate, makes me feel really comfortable when I drive home from church, <laughs> but it doesn't allow me to address the complexities of your situation. So I don't think it's fair anymore for me to just go home to my wife and kids and just say, Jeff, this will work out in the next life. And I think you're honest to put that in your talk. And I don't think you're doing that as a martyr. I don't think you're doing that. I think you're doing that just to help educate people Mm -hmm. in a very thoughtful kind way. So listeners, you probably heard me talk about the 40 chapters. Sometimes this is the way I frame it up. The church's relationship with its LGBTQ members is like a 40 chapter book. And we're not at chapter 40. I don't know what chapter we're in. Um, I'm, uh, But chapter 40 represents, some people say, well, our doctrinal change. And that just polarizes. So I try not to answer that question. I, I do say this, though. I say, um, I don't know Heavenly Father's will, and I'm not a leader of the church. So I really can't speak to what chapter 40 is. But this is what I think it's like. It's when a mom learns her 13-year-old son is gay. She has no fear. And she has complete hope for her straight 13-year-old son in this life and the next life and the plan of salvation, the church. And right now, that's a really scary thing. And a a person your age becoming aware of your sexual orientation, it doesn't have fear about your future. And I think that includes you have a path to have a family. And I don't know how that works, listeners. Um, I just recognize we're not at chapter 40 and we have more work to do. Um, And... Are you okay with any thoughts on that? Is anything I said triggering? Are you okay with that? Or No, I love that. I love that the, it wouldn't be much of a conversation at all when a kid finds out that he's gay, that he could tell his mom and his mom would say, all right, well, we're still going to, we're going to church and nothing, nothing really will change as far as, as far as church goes. Go back to these Gen Z statistics. Some would say this is a sign of the last days, Jeffrey, that more people are identifying as LGBTQ. And so this is just media confusing children. Um, And this is just a sign of this narrative. And I do believe, listeners, that Satan's real. and We are one day closer to the second coming of Christ, but I don't like this general umbrella narrative to sort of put everything that might complicate our conversations into this box. Talk about Gen Z, because that's a pretty high number. Nearly 16% are identifying as not straight. Yeah, this is uh, from a Gallup poll last year, just uh, this past year. This number's huge. Um, Much bigger than other generations in the poll. You know, World War II you know, pre-baby boomer age people are, it's about 1.7%. So we could either believe that this is some crazy jump uh, 
or we could believe that people are now more confident to talk about themselves and that things probably haven't changed all that much um, as far as actual numbers. A lot of people talk about signs of the times and that this is men will become lovers of their own selves and these other scriptures that are good scriptures, important scriptures, but scriptures that are weaponized against gay people and and I've heard weaponized against me many times. Um, I would suggest, I don't know what those scriptures are about entirely, but I would suggest that in the last days, sins of pride and sins of contention and sins of not loving each other and not loving those in our church, those could be the sins of the last days as well. Um, not just things related to sexual sin. I think we tie so much to sexual orientation and so much to that when, when people talk about the last days, it feels to me like they're only talking about gay people. And maybe that's because I'm gay and I feel attacked all the time, but they'll say all these alternative lifestyles and things like that. But there are lots of bad things we can do in this, in this world. It's not just um, tied to our sexual habits and, and other things. So I think that the focus on the end of the world as it relates to gay people is, is really just us ignoring maybe some of the sins that we're susceptible to. It's a very thoughtful comment. I've learned that that is part of our church culture at times. We give these kind of vague references to we're under attack or there's a threat. And listeners, I think that that's, I think if you're going to go down that road, you have to be specific. Who is attacking us and what is the threat? Because I think culturally, I'm a statistician by trade. I would think a lot of Latter-day Saints, I'm sort of an analytical guy like you. I don't have an accounting degree, but I loved accounting. That's all another story. Um, I think a lot of people will say, well, well, that means I shouldn't be kind to gay people. And that lunch I was going to have with a coworker that's gay, the only way I know how to activate that statement or that church talk is not to have lunch with that person. So I think we need to be mature to not have these, I call them veiled threats because the us versus them is often the them is sitting in our congregations. They're in our families, they're in our cars and they're closeted LGBTQ people. And talk about back to Gen X and this big percent, how many have come out in your ward to you? So give us an idea of, just how many LGBTQ people are in this YSA ward in Houston? Yeah, I've had about 15 total come out to me. Um, Can you do the math in your brain on quickly for us what roughly that is of the ward membership? Of people that come to church, you know, we're averaging somewhere around 100 or less than 100. So that math is easy, uh, 15%. And this this fits the statistics that we're we're seeing. Um, you know, two people have come out to me since I gave this talk three weeks ago. This is, there are more. I know that we, we haven't hit all of them, but every single one tells me that they're not sure whether they should stay in the church and they're wondering how I can help them, which is overwhelming a bit to me because I don't know how to help myself sometimes, but almost all of them end their message with, please don't tell anyone that I told you this. And that's, it's so sad to me. Of course they end it that way. And I don't blame them at all. I was just there, but it makes me really sad that 
that they live in fear and that they probably think about this every hour of every day. That's, um, that's a really good segment. And I do give permission for people that don't want to come out to not come out. I think you would too. But I think if our culture improves and people can feel like they come out and it's not a negative experience, more will. And we talk about this quote a lot. Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming somebody you need to be in order to fit in. Belonging doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And you're nodding your head. You know that quote. And mm-hmm. to me, that's what your ward's doing. I did a Twitter poll, listeners, just last night. Um, if you were wondering if you can stay in the church, is it because of a belief crisis was one choice, a belonging crisis, equally both or something else? And a quarter said a belonging crisis. And 35% said equally both. And a belonging crisis to me is a non-doctrinal thing that could be solved by just improving our culture. And uh, Elder Ballard in his talk in April talked about belonging. And to me, I just want to thank your ward leadership, your stake leadership, you, and scale this because I'm thinking that you've if we could have measured your belonging index to your ward, if we could somehow put a stick up to you and get a number, this is me being analytical and put that same stick up to you and get a number now, do you feel like it's improved? It's improved a ton since since coming out in December. And and now I, I wear a little rainbow flag pin to church to, to talk to my the other members of the church. And we have a very transient ward, so a lot of new people come in all the time. And it's just really nice. So many of them make comments like, I'm really glad that I feel safe here with with you having having that pin. And I feel like I'm just as much a member of the ward as anyone else and that I, I belong there. You know, when we talk about primary songs, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Wow. It's sometimes, I guess as a kid, I thought that means I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, but it has so much more meaning if we treat belong like, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here takes great courage to what you're doing. As I, listeners, as I scroll Jeffrey's Facebook feed today, and we'll kind of, I'll say something and I'll turn it back to Jeff for any final comments. I just loved, you put this talk on your Facebook page and we'll link to this talk. Listeners in the podcast description, the actual recording was done. Um, if that's okay, we'll, we'll put that in the podcast notes. You can listen to it. Um, but anyway, as this came on um, Jeffrey's Facebook feed, I just liked the comments, and one guy shared it. Um, and this is what Tyler Searle said. Jeffrey was one of my roommates at BYU for a summer, in addition to be one of the coolest roommates ever, and one of the absolute smartest people I know. He is a gay member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He recently shared some of his experiences along with the powerful testimony in the church and was gracious enough to make it accessible for those of us who weren't in the congregation to read and share it. I don't know the answers to hard questions Jeff and countless others face, but I, like Nephi, know that God loves all his children. I know the Lord looks on his heart, that his ways are higher than our ways, and someday he will, quote, wipe away all the tears from our eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, end quote. And then this is Tyler's charge for all of us. In the meantime, all we can do is love one another as Jesus has loved us and lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees of our brothers and sisters. Love you, brother.
I just love what your roommate wrote there. You can tell him in tears reading it because it's so simple what he's inviting everybody to do, but he wants people to listen to your talk. So he knows the road you're walking so we can do what he invites us to do. So I'll turn it back to you, Jeffrey, for any final comments. I'm really thankful for having so many friends and so much support on this issue and in other things. I always feel like maybe I'll be seen as prideful for posting a talk that I gave in church, you know, or that I might be doing this so that people uh, will talk about me or tell me they're proud of me or something. And and I absolutely don't do it at all for that. I I truly have in mind, as I do any of these things, the 15 people that have messaged me. That's all I can think about all the time. And I feel so overwhelmed and inadequate to help them with their issues that they tell me about. And all I can do is keep posting about it and keep talking about it because then I won't feel guilty for not helping them. How can people find you? I'm on Facebook. Spell your name for us just so people can find you. My name is Jeffrey, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. My last name is Pears, like the fruit, P-E-A-R-S. I'm on Facebook, but I'm unfortunately not on Instagram. I, I never joined that boat. But You can be a wonderful human being and not be on Instagram. <laughs> so Jeffrey Pears, Pears. Pears, exactly. I mispronounced You're Jeffrey right. Pears. Um, thank you for what you've done today and the hope and insight and um, you've given so many people. This is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.